coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. It's, it's really amazing. You get a change in brain state is the most important thing when you go out for a walk. And that's just something you need that break. You need the, that time to breathe. That little uh, amount of, of boost to your circulation really, really helps. And so many of us are just, you know, we get sucked into the vortex of, of technology that essentially every incentive for that technology or the overlords of that tech are to keep you glued to it at all times. And so counteract that a little bit, even for your own nervous system and physiology, like get out there and take a 10 minute break a few times a day, and it'll really help your productivity as well. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I'm doing a rebroadcast of an interview with, I did with Abel James, and this was episode 52. Abel James is a best-selling author, podcast host of the Fat Burning Man Show podcast, and he's a health crusader. He's been doing it for a long time now, and we discussed all about his health journey, his wild diet, his feasting and fasting routine, along with how to stay in shape at home, his morning ritual, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy this rebroadcast. And lots of great tips. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have a great guest on today, Abel James. Welcome to the show. Brian, thanks so much for having me. Abel, yeah, you have, I can give you quite the introduction, author, musician, talk show host, adventurer. Uh, what's your favorite thing to do? Favorite thing. <laughs> I, before I do anything else, usually I wake up and I play some music. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and actually, uh, I know we'll talk a little bit about music because I've I've taken up piano over the last uh, five six years. So awesome! Yeah, really enjoying that. So uh, we'll touch on that. But before we get into that, maybe give a little background. I know you've had su- quite a health journey. I remember reading on your website you were flabby and miserable. Um, to now, what do you got like a six pack and uh, long flowing hair? <laughs> so how, how did you how did that transformation work for you? You know, it was um, I kind of grew up in the world of alternative health because my uh, as an infant, I got very ill and long story short, became allergic to pretty pretty much every antibiotic out there, which has remained true throughout my life. So health has really been more of a survival skill, or at least that's the mentality. It certainly was for my mom, who then at the time was a, a nurse in Western medicine and realized, you know, this the system isn't going to help my kids. What am I going to do? And so she went back to school, got an advanced degree, studied uh, holistic medicine as well as herbs uh, for healing and started incorporating those into uh, clinical practice. And so I was kind of raised in this crazy world where if anything went wrong, mom would race into the woods and come back after making like these bombs and tinctures and herbs and teas. And uh, so that was kind of our our normal back then in a lot of ways. Uh, And then of course, I wanted to prove that I was better than that, you know, and the first time that I got great health insurance right after college Mm. um, to pay off my loans, I got a great job for the first time, you know, and, and it just came with this insurance plan that I'd never seen. I'd never seen anything like it. Like I could go into the doctor um, every two weeks and get my blood and urine analyzed and get all of this feedback and all these, these. The only problem was after following his advice really hard, which was to reduce dietary cholesterol, eat super low fat, you know, eat less, exercise more. I was running about 20, 30 miles a week or whatever. After 18 months of that, all of the problems that we were trying to prevent, like high triglycerides, high blood pressure, issues with thyroid and that run in the family and, and many other things, those all got worse. I put on about 30 pounds. Wow. And uh, after those 18 months, I was I was basically on a half dozen different prescription medications that really? I didn't really need. This is all in my early 20s. Oh, and wow. uh, around the time of all this happening, I uh, I came home one night and my apartment was up in flames and I lost everything I had to my name. And so oh. <laughs> when I went through that, I'm like, 
my life is out of control. This is terrible. What am I going to do? And I looked in the mirror and it's like, all I, all I had was what I was wearing and my fat face. And I was used to being a runner and, and an athlete growing up. And this is just kind of, I looked and felt like a 40 year old man or someone who was just kind of falling apart. And my biomarkers reflected that. And so uh, after going really hard in kind of the traditional Western medicine, preventative health world, I ricocheted hard back to kind of the alternative health wacky world and and but one critical piece that i really got into around that time was functional strength training combined with strategic uh partitioning of carbs especially but but nutrients in general protein carbs and fats if they're not it's it's less of eating a percentage every single day than it is partitioning strategically the macronutrients in the in the calorie load in the right places and combining that with fasting, especially with the fasting within a month or two, I was I was down to single digit body fat, which was pretty much like the first time that I'd ever done that with more muscle mass and less time training. And it made me mad enough to start up my own podcast and blog and the rest of it because I, I thought people should know if if you're willing to do the work and follow the right principles that actually work, it's actually not that difficult. It's it's way better than following the wrong advice really hard and getting fat and sick, like what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for all that to happen when you're in your early 20s is, you know, beyond all those meds. I mean, that's crazy. Thankfully, it was only like a snapshot. That's what it feels like now. Right. It was like my detour into that world. It's like, oh, that didn't work. Right. Yeah. And you know what? To learn that lesson at such a young age is, you know, that's a blessing, right? Yeah. Some people don't learn that stuff until they get to their 60s and 70s. For sure. You know, but I think it really helps that that my mom and my family raised me in a world where it's like I got acne growing up and like I wanted to race to go get Clearasil and all these like mm -hmm. drugs that you could take to make it better. And they're like, no, that stuff is poison. Like stay away from that stuff. And so I think that was reinforced so hard that that I certainly can't take credit for that, but I can take credit for when I got the keys to my own health and could choose my doctor and what I did with it, and it didn't work out well. So I think it's important to recognize for everyone that you go through bumps. It's you make mistakes, but those are lessons at their best that can propel you into something that's that's much better with more meaning and and more purpose and more just momentum behind it. Like I'm pretty steadfast in my beliefs now. And I wasn't so much back then. I was, I was definitely trying different things out and exploring. Yeah. And so that led you to what was, so that was like 10 years, well, you're 36 right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was like 10 years ago. And then you said you started your podcast and did that sort of um, lead you into creating, like, I know you on your website and stuff, you have the wild diet did that, that helped sort of forge you into, into creating that as well. Absolutely, because one of the best ways to learn, I, I mean, it's it's such a privilege and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And I kind of got in early when it was easier, but being able to talk to the authors of the books who are writing on the subjects that you care about is mm -hmm. freaking amazing. Like yeah. that, what a, an incredible way to learn. And, and before, like one of the ways I think I stood apart, and a lot of people do do this, but many people don't, is like before I do the interviews, I read not only their book, but often like their body of work, maybe not the entire body, body of work, depending on who's coming on. But it's like, right. I do re a ton of research to make sure that uh, you're asking the right questions and getting to the things that maybe are usually glossed over or somehow unique. But these people who are great writers are great thinkers. And if you ask them something on the spot, a lot of the times their responses are much more nuanced than than you'd expect from from their body of work and so that's been one of the biggest pieces that i've taken away from this is, is it's so when you're talking about health or medicine or healing or recovery it's so individualized mm -hmm. and it's not just based on genetics but epigenetics and lifestyle factors different uh you know i i've been wearing a cgm or a continuous glucose monitor and the same foods will have a completely different effect on me on different days, depending on sleep or my insulin uh, response based on how much I've exercised that day, you know, and how ready my muscles are to, to get that glycogen into the right places. Or if I've just been on a rest day, like eating that cake might not be such a good idea. <laughs> Whereas you can get away with that stuff in other cases. So uh, I think the nuance piece is really important, but also just being able to learn direct from the 
you know, researcher. A lot of these people are researchers mm -hmm. and being able to ask them questions directly is fantastic because you also just asking them revealing things about their personal lives. Like what did you eat for lunch today can be very revealing as well. Yeah, no, that's the one thing I really enjoy about having a, my own podcast is, you know, you meet people you never thought you'd be able to meet. Um, like I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a big golfer. I got the interview, like a PJ tour guy, uh, cool. who's big, big into fitness. And I, you know, I would never thought I'd be able to, uh, interview him and obviously people like yourself. And, um, I'm curious, um, what would you say the best way to describe your wild diet? Um, is it a, a basis of macros or how, how, how would you best describe that? Yeah, I, I think it's important <laughs> to have something where you can kind of be grounded in the same idea. The problem with, uh, you know, terms like paleo, keto, uh, and, and a lot of the popular terms that come about and kind of rise in popularity and come back down is that they lose their meaning over time. Mm -hmm. And so if, at least for our own coaching community, that's where I kind of came up with the idea wild, which uh, connotes a relationship to the environment and honoring the environment. And so if you're going to eat uh, the way that that would manifest to me and, and to our community generally would be whole, unprocessed, real foods as a start. You know, we, we don't have to be anti-tech uh, necessarily, but, but it's important to understand that most of the processed foods that are available or the monocrops, the foods that are grown uh, on a large scale, are done so for reasons of profit, not our health. And so you have to have your shields up and, and kind of define what are the foods that are going to treat you best? And those are the ones from Mother Nature. So that's the prism to see the world through that hopefully will help people navigate on their own. Because I do have more dogmatic, you know, just like here are the macros if you want to achieve this. Here's what the plate should look like, which generally speaking should be uh, not afraid of real unprocessed traditional fats, especially from healthy animals that were raised on pasture, not being afraid of ruminants either. I'm a, you know, I tend to actually eat more red meat than poultry, uh, especially here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that you're getting your protein kind of as a minimum nutrient. It's not even like a caloric. Like I, I tend not to really count calories and encourage other people as a lifestyle don't either. But it's important to know how to do that and build that skill at some point, being able to kind of eyeball some tuna or a steak or chicken and being like, OK, I, I can kind of guess what the macros are and the caloric load. That's an important skill. But generally speaking, it's pretty reasonable. Veggies and meat with a good amount of fat to make the veggies taste good, not being afraid of traditional, you know, unprocessed salts. And then carbs tend to be. Uh, the majority of foods that are out there for most people, but they're totally scalable based on your your goals and lifestyle. So if you want to lose fat, that's the one to turn down, generally speaking. And if you want to pump up your performance or gain a bunch of mass, that's the one that you pump up. Um, but you keep the protein there pretty much all the time. Fat is also scalable depending on uh, kind of your goals. But protein is the one that most people should be focusing on. Yeah, I completely agree. I've talked about it before. It should be like the staple of the meal. And then everything around that is just sort of like, um, you know, like you said, healthy fats. And then, you know, I know pe some people are afraid of carbs. I think as long as it's nothing processed, you're, you should be just fine. Um, and then it's just sort of based off how you feel. Like I used to have like a huge big salad in the middle of my day with maybe some fish, which is not sounds fine, but like, actually I found that it weighed me down a little bit. Right. And, and so I've actually learned for my own good, I've actually pushed a lot of my carbs if I'm going to have them towards the end of the day. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Is what's your routine? Like your fasting and feasting routine? Yeah. It that's the longer that I've done this, the more it looks like that. But when I first started, it was more a 16, eight where I just, basically push breakfast breakfast into the more like noon territory sure uh, and then stop eating after dinner but the longer that i did that the the more i found that i could push lunch a little bit far like i wasn't hungry by lunch and i'm like well if i'm not hungry then why would i eat right now let's <laughs> let's try 2 p.m 
and you can push that too far and you you like experience what that feels like there's no nirvana waiting at the end like if you're fasting for 40 days straight no you'll die at some point it's mm. not the answer necessarily but it's a really important skill to build metabolically speaking uh and I really experienced a lot of the benefits running too. Like for me, I used to run marathons. I don't run that far anymore, but uh, it's one of those things where if, if you have to be sucking on goo packs and making sure that you're uh, carb loading the night before with all this pasta. And I mean, that's not, that's not ideal because with health as a survival skill, thinking that way, you know, when things get real, it's not when you're well slept and well fed. It's when, you know, you haven't slept, you haven't eaten. And so I think it's important to kind of train for that, even if that means just not eating for a certain portion of the day or going dinner to dinner, to dinner or even every once in a while, I'll do a two or three day fast where I'm still drinking water. I want to be clear about that. I, I don't do dry fasting. I don't tend to do long fasts all that often, but I, uh, the longer I do this, the more it's closer to one and a half meals a day, maybe even one meal a day, where I'm eating for about four to maybe six hours or so. And I think it's important to, I go to bed early. I try to go to bed with sundown most of the year, and oh. I try not to eat. I do eat carbs later in the day, especially post-workout, and I work out in the afternoon. But I try not to eat it too close to when I go to sleep because that can interfere with uh, glucose during sleep and then even the next day and the next morning and, and lead to hunger and just kind of you're feeling off the next day because it's not best to raise your blood sugar right before you go to sleep. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I'm in the same camp as you. I, when I started fasting, it was like just traditional 16, eight. And then you start to realize you're like, well, I don't, I'm not that hungry around noon <laughs> anymore. You realize you don't have, when you start fasting, you don't have to eat as, you don't, you're not, right. you don't have to eat as much when you eat. It's awesome. You know? <laughs> you're full faster. And you just, I think, you know, you, you hear about, I know there's some books and like intuitive fasting or intuitive eating. It's sort of a hot trend word. Um, but it is true. You sort of start to realize that I'm just going to, when I'm hungry, I'll actually eat instead of just like following the clock, you know, yes, most people yeah. do. And when you're able to do that, it, it allows you to realize that some days you're hungrier than others. And that's okay. Some, some right. seasons, some weeks you put on weight, you put on fat or muscle. You're, it just feels right. And then other times it feels right to, to under eat. And I do find that it's based on season or, or timing or a cycle, but it's not predictable for me, but it's definitely real. Like I definitely experience it and I don't mind going up or down five or 10 pounds, kind of just knowing that you can always turn that dial, whichever direction you want, depending on your goals. And that's an, for most people, you know, before all of this, I didn't have that. I didn't have the confidence that, you know, if I wanted to lose five or 10 pounds of flab or whatever, mm -hmm. if I wanted to, lean down and get cut. I didn't have confidence that I could do that. But now after doing this for a while, coaching people and experiencing it myself, like once you have the confidence that you are able to do that, man, that makes a big difference for, for peace of mind and for maintenance as well. It, it's easier to have more fun and moderate, I think for a lot of people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and by no means, I, at least for me, like I, I don't look at like fasting is calorie restriction, right? Like you're, you're eating till you're satisfied and, yeah. and, and I'm in the same boat and I don't count calories or I don't have my clients count calories. Um, you just sort of, you eat until you're, you're full, not like over full. Right. And, uh, and then you move on with the rest of your day. That's a really important point too. Yeah. After I stopped eating a lot of garbage, you know, typical processed breads, lots of gluten and grains. I still eat, you know, sourdoughs and, and homemade things and ancient grains. But, uh, you know, I would get heartburn. I would get this feeling in my stomach where I was still hungry, but it was completely full. Just, just really uncomfortable. Yeah. And that went away. Like I haven't, I haven't really experienced that sense, either of those things. And, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the the causality might be there. I did clean quite a few variables up, but I think probably it just allowed my body to heal to the degree where, where that's not normal. You should not feel like that. But I think for a lot of people, that is normal. That's 
that's par for the course for them is just feeling after every meal uh, burpee and just a little bit upset stomach but that's a good sign that something you're eating is not working working for you and the longer we do this the more we see that different foods have a completely different effect on on different people and and that uh, is something that you have to account for. It's not always convenient, but you know, like if if my wife doesn't do as well with dairy as I do, mm-hmm. you have to account for that. And and also, I think there's there's a lot of you can you can get momentum that way because if if she's going dairy free for a couple of weeks, it makes it a lot easier for me to at least turn it down or experiment with kicking it out too. Which oftentimes kicking out some stuff that you love is very at the very least educational and sometimes really useful too right you learn a lot from just abstaining from things right <laughs> totally and, and like, you don't take them for granted that's my like even kicking out coffee i don't do it on a regular basis but the times that i have it's like i do miss coffee i do right I do you appreciate it more I, when you bring it back right yeah and, and then it's like okay i know why i do this and it, but every once in a while you forget then you take it for granted that's a good time to kick it out again and then uh then you remember um but this is one thing you have to be very protective over your good habits because like I was just talking to a guy yesterday who listens to my show and he's just like, yeah, I was doing so great. I was working out all the time throughout the whole, you know, like terrible year when we were locked in our houses and, and all this stuff. But then contractor came over and ripped up my basement. So I haven't worked out since. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, you can do better than that. You know, and like I understand, yeah. but you still have to keep it going. Otherwise, you you completely lose it. And and once you're in the good groove of those habits, it doesn't take that much effort, but you have to play self-defense and adapt all the time to try to protect that because life just throws you curveball after curveball. That's the biggest challenge with staying true to all of this is, is being honest when those curveballs happen and then making a quick adjustment to make sure that you can keep those good habits going. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And um, what would you say as far as staying in shape? I mean, uh, obviously with the whole quarantine this past year, I've sort of changed my methods around a little bit. Um, what would you say the best way to stay in shape even when you don't have a gym? <laughs> Show up, you know, and, and be honest about it because it doesn't take a ton of know-how. Uh, it really just takes showing up and doing it. And mm-hmm. I, I would say not on a daily basis. That's too much pressure for most people, but on a weekly basis. So the way that I like to think about it, I think it's achievable for me, but it's different being in maintenance than it is, you know, doing it for the first time. It's harder to get back into shape. It really is than it is to stay in shape. Um, So I like thinking about it on a weekly basis where one day a week I'll do something that challenges my muscles and nervous system uh, where I'm going not quite to failure, but it's definitely challenging. So um, heavy-ish deadlifts. but not monstrous, monstrous, you know, like having to go into the gym where you're dropping the weights with all these crazy. No, just like body weight, maybe a little above body weight, but doing it and, and getting some good solid reps until you can't really do that anymore or you mm-hmm. can't do it with good form, but always focusing on safety. So anyway, if you don't have weights at home, that's that's probably fine because you don't really want to start with loaded weights. You want to start with good form. And so try to go down butt to the floor in a good honest squat with good form when you can do that without weight then you can start loading it up with kettlebells with dumbbells free weights whatever it is but i would encourage people to just focus on body weight stuff at the beginning Uh, even just going through the motions of deadlifts squats pushes presses pulls great stuff and that's kind of the goal there, I don't split it up into leg day and chest day and, and stuff like that, like a lot of bodybuilders do. I mostly just do, let's hit all the muscles today. Let's do mm. a strength day. So right. usually I do that on Mondays. You don't need to do that really more than once a week, especially for most people you don't need to. And then another thing I do once a week is high-intensity interval training, usually sprints. And uh, we live in hilly Colorado, so I tend to do mm. hill sprints. And and. The longer I've done that, the more I appreciate the luxurious rest periods, allowing your body to fully recover in between these bursts of high-intensity activity. So what it looks like is um, sprinting for about 20 seconds or so uphill, but that could also be sprinting on something that's that's not, uh, that doesn't have an impact, you know, 
on your joints, something like doing cycle spins on a stationary bike or even mountain climbers, you know, just like jumping back and forth. Jumping jacks could even work. Even swimming. What's that? Even interval swimming. Swimming, absolutely. Great one. Yeah, so just hit it hard for about 20 seconds. Then take as much time, I would say, especially if you're just starting, as much time as you really need. Take, Take minutes, even if it's five or 10 minutes in between these sets. Make sure that you've recovered recovered enough to be ready to go for the next one. And if you're just starting this, six are probably going to be enough, which is if you add that up, that's 20 seconds times six. In terms of actual workload, it's very, it's small. Same thing with these heavy lifts. The actual time that you're doing work is ridiculously low. It's not a suffer fest where like most people think you have to go two hours on a treadmill, just like killing yourself the whole time. But this type of training really isn't like that. It's it's training your body to adapt, to go hard and then recover, and then go hard again, then recover. And uh, you reach a point where doing more of that does not help. So I encourage people, and then this is what I do as well, strength day, one day a week, plenty, and then more of a sprint day type workout, one one day a week is also plenty. And then the other ones, the other days of the week are just, I'm trying to break a sweat just with something usually light, like a a walk, maybe a couple of kettlebell swings or a couple of dips in between interviews today or a couple of pull-ups in between these kind of like micro Micro, workouts. Right, micro workouts, yeah. Yeah, that add up. Brad Curran's big fan, right? right. (laughs) And and so essentially that allows you to just, instead of putting your workout into one thing when you're wearing all your workout clothes, you can can put in a few reps not to the point of, of sweating, and that adds up to like a good amount of volume over time. And that's what matters is pushing weight or pulling weight. Moving weight over time is what matters on a, on a weekly and even monthly basis, far more than a daily basis. So it, if you do that and then the rest of the days you try to just like be relatively active, you know, instead of sitting um, for my interviews, I stand instead of sitting when I play guitar for the most part, I'm standing up and, mm-hmm. and you can make those decisions throughout your day to take two steps at a time instead of one when you're going up the stairs. Just little things like that. Uh, trying to be more active than not. And, and one of the biggest reasons I do that is just the mental, the cognitive benefit of that. Your nervous system's fired up and ready to go. You get blood flowing everywhere. You think better. And so it's really, in, in terms of minimum amount of workout, it is minutes of work a week. But most of the time that you're going to be working out is recovery. And uh, and so I think a lot of people, that's the secret is showing up and being willing to do those things, sleep well, stay hydrated. These are not sexy, novel ideas at all. These are the pillars that everyone who's healthy just does every day and shows up and doesn't usually talk about it because it's almost like a, it's just an assumption that you have to do these things for the people who have done it long enough, but some of the people who are newer to it might not be aware of that, you know? Yeah. And I always say it's like the small little things that you do over time that make the biggest difference. And, uh, one of those things that I think it's probably been a positive to the quarantine is, um, more dogs were adopted, right? So people were getting dogs and like, I have two, I know you have a dog. I have, there's my dog right there. I actually have two now, so I might have to change my logo. (laughs) Oh yeah. I got to include the other one. Yeah. I feel bad. So I got to put him in there, but so two dogs, I'm out walking more than I've ever walked in my life. And I usually do it after meals, which is great. Cause it sort of blunts that, that insulin rise a bit when you go for a walk after a meal. Um, so that I, I, you know, I talked to, um, a few, a few interviews regarding just the positivity of having a dog and the impact that can make on your life. Yeah, yeah. And I encourage people who don't have a dog to pretend that you do and take yourself <laughs> for a walk. <laughs> yeah. You know what happens when the dog doesn't go for a walk? It's it's unacceptable, but people don't carry that over to their own lives. It's it's really amazing. You get a change in brain state is the most important thing when you go out for a walk. And that's just something you need that break. You need that that time to breathe. That little uh amount of, of boost to your circulation really, really helps. And so many of us are just, you know, we get sucked into the vortex of of technology that essentially 
every incentive for that technology or the overlords of that tech are to keep you glued to it at all times. And so counteract that a little bit, even for your own nervous system and physiology, like get out there and take a 10 minute break a few times a day and it'll really help your productivity as well. Yeah. So don't go out there and walk with your cell phone. Looking at I, yeah, exactly. I see people do that. I'm like, God, they're on a walk with their dog and they're looking at their cell phone half the time. I'm like, what's yep. the point of that? Yeah, I agree. What would you say? So you've been in this game for a while in podcasting, your health podcast. Um, what would you say some of the biggest things that have changed over the last 10 years um, as far as the things that are just being, you know, spit out or spewed out, you know, with all these health experts? Um, what has sort of been the shift, would you say? I would say it's so much more saturated now, Mm -hmm. and most of the messaging is so much more superficial, whiz, bam, clickbait, that Mm. it's a little frustrating for some of the the old timers, like (laughs) us who have been at this for a while, when it's, you know, because originally, if you searched for something that was around ancestral health, these professors who had been writing about it on blogs since 1996 would be the first ones who come up. And now it's just freaking MSNBC and Fox News and all of these, you know, kind of corporate mainstream websites and all the people who are doing the deeper work or have been doing it for longer or are doing it on their own terms or whatever have been <laughs> delisted or buried or just mm-hmm. put over. And that's. That's a little frustrating, but one way around that I find is just is by reading books. People don't actually. So ten years ago, when I started this, a lot of people read books, and that it was the assumption that that you would. <laughs> and now, because I think there are so many other alternatives, because you know there are interviews of people who are in video form, and then there's there's audio. So why would you take the time to to read their book? I would argue it's because it's so much deeper most of the time. And, and that's where you get the, the real insight is by not just listening to bits and bites here and there, but really going deep and looking into the references and then exploring those and looking into the similar books or bodies of work. Uh, and, and all of that stuff is as relevant as ever. You know, even if you're looking back in time, many of the best books are, are decades old and it doesn't matter because they all knew, like most of the people who practice good health and medicine have known this for well over a century. It's just been buried in different circles. And and uh, now when you try to look something up or you try to get health information, it's hard to know what the incentives are and which words are sponsored. And, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, just, even the studies, right? All the studies that are just being backed by big pockets right and big companies yeah Yeah. and and just talking head celebrities and all these sponsored posts and stuff like that and and i definitely partner with other companies too but i think you know now it's such a mix of corporate messaging combined with free information that it's hairy for people who don't already have their feet on the ground in in this world and kind of have good habits uh, you, you definitely have to practice your self-defense. But I would explore anyone to, to really go into books, even older books. Is there and a book that sticks out for you? <laughs> every time I do. So I'm doing like 10 or 12 of these interviews in a couple of days because I like to batch them. And, oh. and before that, I just have a stack of books. <laughs> where I'm like for the whole weekend, and usually a few days, sometimes a whole week, I'm just reading mm. these books. Um it's in terms of a body of work, Dr. Anne Louise Gittleman, I think, is is totally underrated. She has some great books that cover some some vast territory. Um, I'm talking to Rob Wolf after this. Sacred Cow is a great, great book that he wrote with Diana Rogers uh, mm-hmm. about regenerative meat and sustainability. Let's see. Uh, those are the two ones that that stick out. Yeah right now but but i would say for anyone who catches your fancy it's a bargain to get it for 15 bucks you know it's usually the value much more of a value than buying someone's course or some other like bigger hundreds of dollar program or even in-person stuff it's really just if you go in there it's incredible the generosity of knowledge that's that's usually available especially when you go back historically and it gives a lot of perspective to know that people were doing essentially keto diabetic diets a hundred years ago and arguing with vegans a hundred years ago <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like it all comes full circle happening yeah. the whole time it's it's entertaining to know that 
Yeah, I mean, well, I always say that you're never going to hear much about fasting in the mainstream because no one makes money when you fast, no. right? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, but fasting has <laughs> been going on for a long, long time on you know, almost every major religion, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and fasting is one of those things where I think it's it's part of the human experience that a lot of people are missing out on. It does, you grow in terms of strength, resiliency, and I think even mental strength oh for sure you put that in your practice to some degree yeah it gives you the flexibility i always say i mean you know when you start getting into fasting you realize you don't need to eat all the time and it right. sort of yeah just like you so if you're traveling or doing whatever and you miss a meal it, it's not a big deal <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. which becomes a superpower it does it does yeah and um I, you know, I know I wanted to touch a little bit on, I know you're obviously big into music and musical training. What, are, what would you say some of the benefits of doing that? That's part of the reason I sort of got into piano was I was like, well, I work my mind, I work my body a ton. Um, and I've been into fitness for so long. I want to, I got to start working my mind other than maybe reading. And uh, yeah. What, yeah, so I know you study that a little bit. What, what would you say some of the benefits of that are? There are so many, but uh, I, I studied this for a while. And my first research project and book was about this called The Musical Brain. Mm -hmm. So some of this stuff is just, I think the most important stuff is more like N equals one, your own personal experience. Mm -hmm. But this part is proven by research. Active listening is improved, which basically means, uh, well, I'll explain it this way. They did a, several studies of musicians in their brains and and it was based on language and the way that you understand language and they found that musicians could better understand the the inflection of those words mm. and the added meaning behind those words whereas regular non-trained uh or, or non-musicians right non-playing musicians weren't able to hear the inflection and the emotional uh information that mm. was in that so like an example is I'm fine. <laughs> if anyone's significant other says I'm fine, like oftentimes that's not what they mean. And so those examples of the the inflection of our language not reflecting the meaning in the words are more common than most people would expect. And so that's an example of active listening where uh, you're you're kind of picking up on what someone's actually saying in a in a bigger picture, mm -hmm. but you can hone in on pieces of that to get more specific meaning. So how that shows up in music is a lot of people who aren't necessarily trained in playing music can't hear the trumpet or the bass line at, right. on its own. You know, in the same way that a dog can, sell the, can smell the tomatoes in the soup and the garlic in the soup right. and all these things separately because they have this... It like heightens out. your senses, right? Exactly. It, yeah. it heightens... The like fidelity of your senses. It allows you to deconstruct sounds and go in there and be like, "What is that?" and and isolate that. So that's that's definitely a powerful skill for language communication, um, and and active listening also in nature. You know, I, it helps me pick up bird sounds. But that, that's one of our hobbies. It's just like which birds are around based on you know which national park we're in or whatever, and and being able to pay attention to those things is really important. But also dexterity obviously reflexes for me i i uh i've learned a lot about tendonitis recovery and 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 training even from running scales on the piano to a fast tempo because mm -hmm. that's pretty much the same thing as running a sprint you know and if you develop tendonitis then the way that you resolve it is similar or, or even the same based on these different domains so i think it's it's a way to cross train for fine dexterity which is more important than, than people realize. One, this isn't necessarily supported by science, but when you look at different, uh, like I remember seeing in junior high, B.B. King, who was diabetic and, and not doing well later in life, just wheeled out there on stage. And then he just ripped <laughs> up car, you know, for out, just ripping. It was amazing and so cool. And he did live a relatively long lifetime, even though he was otherwise completely, you know, out of shape and, and really in horrible metabolic health with different uh, manifestations of advanced disease, really. 
and you see that all the time with these different you know musicians who are who are if they don't die by 26 or 27 then they live until they're 80 or 90 even if they're chain smoking for 90 years even if they're completely overweight and i think a lot of that has to do with the health of their nervous system because one of the biggest reasons that people die is is muscle wasting falls you know your nervous system failing and if you can still rip on guitar or if you still have the technique to do something with your voice or with with piano then your nervous system is going to be trained and finely tuned to, to have that snap that goes away from that quickness that does go away and that's what you know once your nervous system starts degrading then you fall ill and and kind of die <laughs> and so if you can preserve that from multiple directions sprinting with the whole body big heavy lifts and doing fine things just tinkering around on the piano or guitar or other instruments i think that's a great way to to preserve the health of your nervous system and, and a target for longevity and it's a it's a, if you're not growing and getting better then usually you're atrophying in some way and i don't feel right unless i'm in fighting like on guitar you know, mm -hmm. I just don't feel right. And uh, I think that's a healthy way for people to exercise frustrations, to grow, to make mistakes without the stakes being too high publicly. And it's just like, a, it's fun to have multiple hobbies. It's good to have, to practice in multiple domains, just like we all did in elementary school. We should never give that up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, learning an instrument or anything at an older age, you know, I'm 40, and you just get to have a greater appreciation than when, if your parents just force you to do it when you're like 10 years old <laughs> and you don't really want to do it. But when you learn something at an older age, you're like, wow, you really appreciate that le learning and, and just what it, what it takes to get better. And it's a luxury, really. <laughs> you only have so many things that you can do that with. You only have so much time and willpower. And for me, it's like, we, we didn't always have the luxury of having a, a piano or a keyboard around and like you didn't always have the time because you're going to school and you have to go to work and all this other stuff so really if you are able to to set up your life and carve that out i appreciate now that it is a luxury to be able to spend your time doing those things creative things but you have to prioritize that and protect it and mm -hmm. it's not easy it's not easy but it's worth it right yeah no i i try to do a little bit every day right it's like anything else yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's so much better that way. I used to teach guitar uh, in college and the adults would pay me money and they're like, why am I not getting better? <laughs> and the kids right. would come in, they'd play a little bit every day, you know, and they would always get better. They would, they would come in every week and they would get better because they would play a little bit every day and the adults would just think that they would get results because they paid money. And, and we have to coach that out of our own thinking because for some reason we're all conditioned that way once we reach a certain age or right. maturity or something we all just kind of have these expectations <laughs> same thing i mean i coach golf a little bit and it's like I, I i tell them i'm like this lesson that i'm helping you with it's a waste of time if you if i see you in a month and you haven't done <laughs> done anything right. with it right. um because golf lessons you know they can be expensive and a lot of people get them and they never do anything with them so yeah yeah, you got to put in the work, but that becomes fun. That becomes very rewarding. Right. It, it's not supposed to come from the teacher. It has to come from you, and that's what keeps you going. Um, a few more things I wanted to touch on routine. I'm a big like morning routine and night routine. What what type of things that you do that, um, that make, you know, let's just say your morning and night routine um, unique to yourself? I'm really protective of the first part of the day. Yeah. So when you first wake up before anyone's gotten to you with text messages with emails with whatever expectations or responsibilities are there for the rest of the day treasure that time because mm -hmm. it's it's kind of you have a purity of mind that you just won't get back once you start checking your email once you start getting into this reactive state so i wake up and typically try to hammer out a lot of stuff that i know is going to be good for me all at the beginning mm -hmm. and that way no one can touch me for the rest of the day because I've already done the things that I wanted to do. Uh, and then I just have to show up for my commitments. It, this is the way that I think of it, you know. Yeah. So the first third of the day is kind of that protected time, the creative time. Um, so the second third will be more fulfilling my responsibilities for, for work or for just things that are more procedural or administrative. And then the end of the day is more where I'll put the um, 
I guess consumption. That's where I'm eating. That's where I'm kicking back. And that's where I'm actually like watching uh, an interview or listening to something or kind of relaxing because I'm, I'm a bit out of gas by the end of the day. And I like that. I like being tired by the time I go to sleep. But right. so in terms of the beginning of the day, waking up, um, hydrate. A lot of these things I take for granted. So I have to like, <laughs> right, up. right. And they're big things, but they add up, right? Yeah, exactly. But hydrating for sure with actually some electrolytes. I enjoy, um, I, I make just one cup of pour over coffee that I drink over the course of like literally two hours of practice, sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes an hour if I have to squish it in, you know, and it's a really busy day, but I'll practice running scales and just drills and technique to warm up on the piano and then i'll play some stuff that i want to work on then i'll do the same thing on guitar then i do a little spirit reading i, I read the i ching every day and some other just kind of studying i'm reading a book about um puthark runes and and what the meaning behind those are and, and symbolism and things like that. But, but things to try to advance our spiritual understanding in some way for just a few minutes. Uh, but I usually do that with my wife and then, um, let's see, what am I, what am I missing? <laughs> Sometimes a little micro. Do you take oh, your dog oh. for a walk? <laughs> yeah. So my wife usually does it in the morning and okay. later in the day, but, uh, Qigong, I usually do, uh, like right after I've, uh, finish my practicing music. So it's kind of like yoga or Tai Chi mm -hmm. where I'm, I'm moving through different positions, squishing my organs and just kind of doing things that aren't taxing to the system, but do require balance and do require mental concentration and breath work along with that. I don't count it as breath work because I just, I've never gotten into breath work on its own, but mm -hmm. I find if it's included in something else, I love it. So um, right. those are breath holds there. I'm kind of manipulating my breath throughout those different positions and things like that. So I think that's a really important part of the day that adds up over the long term. I meditate afterwards for just a couple minutes. Um, and that adds up over the long term to just kind of a balanced peace of mind that I didn't used to have where you have more control over that, just all the voices in your head that are nagging you to say this or do this or interrupting your thoughts, that calms down a little bit once you have this daily practice of, of calming yourself down and trying to separate all that stuff out. So I think that really helps. And I'll also usually do red light and near infrared in, uh, in the first part of the day, sometimes in the later part of the day too, in like a targeted part of the body. But there's some biohacky things, blue blocking glasses. I try to get sunlight as soon as it comes up over the mountains mm -hmm. in the morning it's 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 usually i'm playing piano and the sun is rising and it's mm -hmm. coming and hitting my eyes that's important for regulating melatonin things like that so uh, also grounding i try to go outside a few times a week at least barefoot but even if it's really cold and just have my feet touch the ground and mm -hmm. experience a little bit of cold but i don't do cold plunging plunging or or too oh, great cold thermogenesis or anything like oh that. you got to get into that yeah, are you into it? Yeah, yeah, I've gotten into. Well, I know Brad. Brad Kearns is big into that. Huge into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love it. I think I think you should give it a go. It and it's just another way to just. It's a stressor, but it's like it's it's almost like fasting. It's just sort of a mind thing. And once you just learn, you know, talk about breathing. That's what it's all about. And so right. that'll actually help with breathing. And so I would definitely even you know even if it's just like filling up your tub, and just going in there for a minute or two. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure you can get your tub pretty cold, um, here in Chicago, oh, yeah. I can get mine pretty, for sure. pretty cold. So yeah, no, I, I think it, you, you would enjoy it. I really do. Cool. Yeah. I'll give it a shake. <laughs> You'll have to let me know. Um, I also wanted to ask a, a question. I asked all my guests, what would be, um, like your one tip if you had to give someone who's like middle-aged and they want to get their body back to what it once was back when they were, you know, maybe in their twenties. I would say practice intermittent fasting or, uh, or or cycles of under eating and then partitioning your indulgences, especially your carbs, to after those workouts. So a lot of people say, and, this, and I agree, that nutrition, if you have to put them next to each other, is more important for getting back to your ideal body size or body composition than, than you know, working out is. Mm -hmm. But you 
you just can't really get there once things get hard, I think, especially if you're talking about middle-aged hormones or, you know, not what they were when you were a teenager or in your 20s. Once it starts getting difficult, then I think you just have to be a little bit more strategic, uh, a little bit more specific to your own individual needs. But combining the intermittent fasting with the uh, partitioning of carbs, which are scalable, I think you for most people, they do better with, with some than none. Mm-hmm. And so putting them after a, an honest workout, you know, once or twice a week, can lead to just wonderful changes over time. And I have coached people down really fast to lose weight extremely quickly. I don't recommend that for most people, but if you're motivated, then essentially a protein sparing modified fast where you get your protein in first, you scale your fat based on your hunger, and then you kind of just avoid carbs. You still eat some veg, but you basically just avoid carbs for as long as you want to lose weight. You can lose an incredible amount of weight over time, oftentimes pretty quickly, because instead of you're getting plenty of protein from from your diet, you're getting a little bit of fat, but most of the fat is coming from your body fat stores. And then you're not really getting carbs, which prevents you from going into a, a, a storage state with nutrients that are coming in. And so that can be really effective for for some people, but it's really about the Try not to think about it in a daily way. Think about it more in a weekly schedule. And that will help a lot of people cope with the days where they feel like they should eat more or the days where they feel like they should eat less. And intermittent fasting is a great inroads to understanding true hunger. Mm-hmm. I love that. A lot, lot of good insight in that. Um, and we didn't have a ton of time to, to touch on your, your kid's book that came out. Um, and it's interesting because I actually wrote a kid's book about five years ago. Huh. Uh, yeah. So I saw that you wrote a kid's book. I'm like, oh, uh, yours is designer babies still get scabbies. Is that right? Scabies, <laughs> yeah. Scabies. <laughs> okay. Anyways, yeah, I, I want to check that out. I, I came out with one called The Magic Zoo. And I know yours is based around poetry, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, more for teenage and up than necessarily okay. little kids. But okay. <laughs> it's one of those things where I realized that I could get away with saying some relatively scandalous things if I was willing to rhyme them. So I, I made sure to rhyme a lot of the poems. But it's one of those things where I find that creating um, music, art, just expressing yourself in various ways is a great way to exercise your emotions and get rid of all of the frustrations that come with living in the modern world. And there are plenty. There are there are plenty. So when I feel a little bit down, a lot of times I try to create my way out of it. And hopefully by adding a, a little bit of humor or a little bit of satire, you can you can just laugh off all most of the darkness in this world. That's a great way to cope. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. And um, where would be the best place for people to find uh, what you're doing next? Probably fatburningman.com or just looking up Abel James. The podcast is also called Fat Burning Man. And then for the more music and artistic minded stuff, it's abeljames.com for that one. Awesome. Well, this was great. We probably could have talked for another hour, but <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be great. Anytime you want to do it again, just hit me up. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.